to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I am joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm great. Happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, first up, in controversies and controversies, should a little light cannibalism cost someone their job? That's the question facing Army Hammer who has exited the upcoming J-Lo feature shotgun wedding after DMs he sent to women surfaced in which he supposedly told women he is, quote, 100% a cannibal, end quote, and, quote, wants to drink your blood, end quote. Um, also, there was something about eating the hearts of cats in all of this. I don't know. I haven't really uh, dug deep into the Army Hammer DMs because I, they scare me. Um, I don't want to make light of suggestions that Army Hammer was sending bad messages to women online. And if this segment goes totally off the rails, uh, just for the record, Alyssa suggested we do it. So please send her all the hate mail. Um, uh, but there is something deeply weird and deeply modern about the way all of this played out. On the one hand, we're instructed never to kink shame. On the other, when news of Army Hammer's fantasies broke, the shame flowed with great haste. Uh, there's the dissolving barrier of personal and private space, combined with the fact that Hammer is both the scion of a massive corporate fortune and a Hollywood player, two worlds from which you are never, ever expected to pay for anything you do or say ever. Uh, Alyssa... Should Army be taking this time with his family, or should he be heading to the Dominican Republic to find new victims for his cannibalism? <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's an interesting question for his family, whether they want to be spending time with him, um, given, given the circumstances. But no, I thought this was a really interesting story, um, because it is, you know, it it like you say, it's at the intersection of a bunch of big questions. Um, but to manage the sort of kink-shaming question first, I mean, I think there's a general rule as you know folks who talk about sex on the internet like to put it that you don't yuck someone else's yum at the same time when your yum involves talking about potentially cutting off people's legs and barbecuing them that seems like something where you should be pretty clear that the other person is good with it first um you know yeah i mean obviously nobody should uh just go out there and cut off legs no, 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 but, but if, like, the, if I, the other person wants the leg cut off i don't know i mean you know this this was literally the subject of the network television show hannibal which includes a character <laughs> doing that you know like cutting off her own leg and serving it up at her cannibal i think therapy patients behest um network television's gotten really weird you guys like the line between cable (laughs) network just doesn't exist anymore but yeah i think it is like if your thing is talking about cutting off pieces of people and barbecuing them or it as in one reported case talking about like cutting off someone's toes so you can always have a piece of them to carry around like you gotta be really clear that the other person is comfortable with that first, right? Like that is just not your first move when you slide into the DMs. Um, And, you know, to take it a little more seriously, I mean, I think that, you know, people can do things and fantasize about things consensually and safely in ways that would be, that are, I think within the realm of acceptable sexual behavior and fantasy, even if those are things that you would never do in real life. Um, people play at being or being interested in all sorts of different stuff. Um, and there are ways to explore your fantasy life in a sort of safe, consensual environment. There are ways that you can reproduce power dynamics that would be uneasy or illegal if enacted outside of sort of a carefully structured framework of make-believe. Um, but I think that what people have been caught up in about this is first that the fantasies themselves seem so weird, right? I mean, you know, like the Hannibal Lecter's of the world may be the object of fascination, but like nobody wants to find out that their Tinder date is like cutting up and eating people. Um, 
but also the fact that he appeared to really just sort of press this fantasy on people. It was, you know, it, if it was not quite an opening line, um, it was not something that, you know, the people who were getting these messages or being told this in person were super into. And that's where the violation comes in, right? I mean, like, you can be interested in a lot of weird stuff, but you got to find someone else who is into that thing. And you can't, you know, pushing someone to, like, asking someone to eat, you know, a certain subspecialty of Indian food is not the same thing as asking them to, like, try out a little bit of light cannibalism play. Um, And so I think the sense of sort of entitlement and coupled with the specific oddity of the fantasy is what really freaked people out. Whether this has an implication on whether Army Hammer, uh, you know, harasses his colleagues on film sets is not a remotely clear part of this story. It seems like he behaves in a way that is creepy to outright unpleasant, if not illegal in his personal life. But I don't think there are specific allegations that like he's sidling up to J-Lo on you know a movie set and being like how about those ears I bet they'd be really good yeah. with teriyaki right like there, well, there is a difference yeah. between you know being even being someone you wouldn't want to go out on a date with I mean this is sort of a more extreme version of like the Aziz Ansari problem um you know. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and this is, and Peter, this is, I, I want to ask you this, uh, only slightly tongue-in-cheek, I mean, I, I really do feel like this is, for for all the bad rap that the term cancel culture gets, I do feel like this is a, like, one of these things where we're sidling up to a very strange spot where we say, okay, here's private conversations uh, he has had with, as, as best as I can tell, willing participants, for the most part, this, is, this doesn't seem to be a Louis C.K. type story where he's just, like, you know, showing up and 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 doing stuff without asking. Um, it's just kind of weird, and not 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 entirely fun to think about. I like is this is this the sort of thing where he he should feel any sort of pro- professional pressure to to stay out of the spotlight for a bit? I'm I, I'm curious to get your take. Yeah, I think this is a it's a tough case in some ways. Um, and the first thing I thought about when reading this uh, initially was that scene in Punch Drunk Love. I don't know if you guys uh, remember this, but it's sort of at the end of the second act after the Adam Sandler character has gone to Hawaii and he's there and he with the, you know, with the woman who he's sort of been on and off kind of flirting with in this very, very strange way. And part of the Adam Sandler character's uh, sort of character just the, the the person there right and the appeal of that character in that movie is that pt anderson built this this man child who was on the one hand sort of like a fully formed functional adult but captured some of the adam sandler like weird burst into rageness in a dramatic character rather than just a kind of typical sandler cartoon comedy character um and the two of them are in bed at a hotel room in this scene from Punch Drunk Love, and they start talking about how they want to eat each other's faces. And it's, and I, I say that, and it like, just saying that, it sounds really bizarre. And it is a little bit bizarre. The whole movie's a little bit bizarre. And it sounds kind of gross, but in the movie, it's actually kind of extremely charming and romantic in a, in a weird and off-put, like, and not necessarily normal way, right? And the And what that movie does is it demonstrates how when two people are both into it, that sort of thing can, 
not saying it, it is for everyone, but that sort of thing and that sort of talk can be like actually part of the thrill of connecting with someone else. And it's not even the way it's presented in the film. It's not even that it's about physically it's it's not an actual physical desire right it's not that cannibalism is something that is on the adam sandler character's mind in any way in a in a meaningful way what it is about is this desire to this 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 sort of like the movie is in some ways a sort of examination of romantic comedy tropes and it's about um how in some ways romance and the desire for another person is a desire to become and consume that other person metaphorically and so they literalize it with this sort of bed talk. Um, and I just thought about this. And on the one hand, I was like, well, you know, this sort of thing can can obviously be be charming even um, in a weird way. And yet in this case and in, in the instances that are being described here, it is not charming. And there's a very clear reason why, which is that both people aren't into it. Right. And that's the big difference. And that's sort of what makes this what makes this harder and he clearly this seems to be not just like sort of one thing that came out of an unusually intense relationship but a a particular and consistent sort of thing that he was bringing up and pushing on people who did not necessarily always want that idea to be present in their romantic life um and so you know i i, I think I think it's a, a difficult case because in, in a lot of ways, like that's not pleasant. That's not something that you, you know, sort of want to condone at the same time. It is also hard to negotiate like that sort of thing. And in fact, making it explicit. Hey, can I talk to you about how I, I would like to talk like a sexy cannibal? <laughs> can I do some yeah. sexy cannibal talk with you on our texts here? Like, even if you're, even if you love sexy cannibal talk, who doesn't it's really oh weird to like put a pin on it that way and be like before we get to the sexy cannibal talk i really want to talk about which body parts it's okay for me to say i want to eat are you okay with toes toenails hair right like nope okay the toes are fine but not the nose the nose we're gonna not right and like and it, admittedly like that's one way to solve this problem is to expect and to sort of build culturally in that, that like everybody knows that's just what you got to do and and when it comes to and like i think that when it comes to physical actions some amount of that, even if it is a little bit unsexy sometimes, is pretty necessary or at the very least um, strongly, strongly recommended, right? Especially yeah. for people who don't know each other very well. Um, but when it comes to talk, when it is just talk, and I, so I guess we should probably sort of, maybe I should just ask, do you guys think that this was going to be anything more than talk? Like, do I think he was actually going to consume the flesh of another human being? I mean... Anything or more than talk, right? Like cat. you can imagine light, playful biting being part of this. You can imagine I something I, much more. So. I am not. I'm, I'm not, not asking you I'm to imagine. Great, right? I'm not interested in getting into a breakdown of the various. <laughs> I'm asking. Sexual do you believe techniques. right? So, so no, because I, just, I, I actually think there's. I don't think. A big it, I don't think difference. it's. I don't think it's. I don't think it's any of our business. Right. And this is this is the this is the but, long and the short of it. This is why I think Alyssa's Alyssa's point about Aziz Ansari is instructive. Um, you know, he had a mild career setback a couple years back because somebody wrote an essay about a bad hookup. Essentially, that's all it was. It was a bad hookup. It was not a, it was not, there was no, yep. uh, it was not, it was not a question of rape. It was not a question of sexual assault. It was just like, okay, well, this wasn't great. And then it turned into a whole thing. Um, 
and he seems fine now, I guess. I don't, I don't really know what's going on with his career. I'm not a huge stand-up comedy guy, so I don't, I'm, I don't know. Uh, but the, the, this, this seems to be kind of a similar thing, just on a, on a more extreme level. I mean, the real, the real issue here is that he, he has former, a uh, former girlfriend out now saying like, I had, I suffered PTSD after our relationship. He was commanding and controlling and I you know I never I like he he always wanted to be around me and blah and okay I mean again that is like maybe it's not not great maybe it's not ideal but I've yet to see anything actually criminal suggested and I I don't I just don't think it's really any of our business I don't think it matters I mean the, the... And, I, 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 and I don't think it should and like and this gets to a kind of a separate question about like the idea of a star a movie star versus the I uh you know the 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 qualitative uh, uh, criticism of his acting or whatever, right? Like the 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 idea of a persona versus the professional uh, work and how those meld. But I I just like I look at all this stuff and I'm like I don't I don't I just don't care. I mean I don't care. I, I, so I want to hear what Alyssa has to say about this. But very briefly, I I agree to an extent that I just don't love the celebrity gossip industrial complex and the way it forces private lives out on display at the same time i do understand this is not to say that i justify or sort of fully agree with all of this but i understand that the business of acting is a business of uh, of revealing yourself in a deep and intimate way that like selling insurance isn't but also one that requires a kind of physical trust and intimacy uh, with your co-stars and with the other people on set not even uh, in particular between the actors but even sometimes between like grips and actors right who are on set when you are uh, when you're not wearing a lot of clothes when you're doing things that are super awkward for you and there's just this whole sort of uh there is a, a level of trust that is required on sets that is not the same as a lot of other industries um, and that makes this stuff, again, it's not that I love it. And I certainly don't love that it's on display for public consumption all the time in every little detail. But but it requires a kind of level of trust and intimacy that other businesses don't. And that's part of the reason, as well as just kind of puerile public fascination, that this stuff gets uh, played out in the press, and then it becomes a job matter. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I feel like there is a set of sliding scales at work here, right? I mean, there is the like actual heinousness of the act, which can range from like sending a creepy DM to like actually dismembering someone. There is, you know, how creepy like, there is, you know, the sort of the nature of the fantasy from like rose petals to like cannibalism. Um, and then there is, you know, how much someone's job depends on them having, you know, a relatively attractive public facing um, persona. And, you know, it's it's not a matter of it's not simple. It's not simple to toggle all of those tabs or to add up the results from those three sliding scales and get what an obvious response should be. And I think, you know, this is the. This is the really hard part of trying to build a public sexual morality, right? Is that, you know, those, they're scales, they're not binary questions. People may define, you know, particular points on the scale, may assign sort of different values to them. And, the, and you know, the overall equation is different. Um, I mean, I think, and I am not normally someone to be sort of woe is famous people, but I do imagine that it must be incredibly hard to be a very famous person right now um, in terms of, like 
how do you date? How do you, you know, how do you, like you're a divorced parent, like how do you go about dating? When do you bring out the non-disclosure agreements? Like if the norm for dating now is that people have sex relatively early in relationships, like can you do that? You know, how do you, how do you live as a person in the world with this level of scrutiny? And you know, I think, Peter, you mentioned not sort of loving the celebrity industrial complex. And it's, I mean, I think it's worth thinking about how fast that has evolved. Um, I have sort of a weird side interest in the British royal family because I'm a lady living in America in boo. 2021 and I need some escapist nonsense to pay boo. attention boo. to. Boo the monarchy. I mean, fair. Um, but, it, you know, it's worth remembering, like, a generation ago, people who were like ham radio enthusiasts recorded like accidentally got access to a private conversation between prince charles and uh, camilla parker bowles who's now his wife and the press sat on it for two years um in part because they were afraid of you know actual press regulation in the uk which has different uh, you know a different approach to libel laws and, and privacy and everything but the idea that you could have like an incredibly explosive recording about some of the most famous people in the world and you would sit on it for two years because you weren't sure about it. I mean, the norms have changed generationally so fast. Um, and I think that we don't entirely know what to do with the fact that we have access to this much information about famous people, much less if you're that famous person, how to live your life. I mean, if... If I were as famous as Army Hammer is, I would be like delivering communications between people by messenger, right? Like no physical evidence, nobody can record it. <laughs> like I just I have no idea how you live like that as a human being. Yeah. And I don't know that any of us know entirely how to process information like this either. I mean, I, th yeah. I think one thing you can do is not find out about these stories, right? Like I was vaguely, I, as I told you guys when we were preparing for this segment, I was vaguely aware that there was cannibalism texts, like in the. This news. is all my fault. It's like and, to be fair, this is I, I didn't fault. even know it was connected to Army Hammer because yeah. I was just like, I I'm not gonna learn about that. I've got other stuff to do. Yeah, I got a video game to play. Army Hammer, who what, whose grandfather, uh, for reference, Armand Hammer, was uh, one of Prince Charles's mentors. Everything's weird. And yeah, who was uh, gonna be I, Batman in the George yeah. Miller Justice League film? He absolutely was. No, it was, it's it's funny. I I I actually met Army Hammer in like two thousand and seven or two thousand and eight, uh, when all of that talk was swirling because he was acting in a short film uh, called Twenty Eighty One. Uh, that is, it, it's it is it's fascinating. I, I highly recommend if you can track down a copy, watching it because it's interesting to see a a person with actual like charisma and star power before they hit that star point. All right, uh, so. What do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy that Army Hammer uh, has felt forced to leave Shotgun Wedding because of his weird and possibly bad DMs? Alyssa? It's definitely controversial. I think the controversy yeah. is that they're making a movie called Shotgun Wedding about a wedding where everybody gets taken hostage. Come on. That's not what the phrase shotgun wedding means. I agree, but Peter. But that's what the movie is about. More, more. I, I know. I'm agreeing with you. It's... I, Team pedant on this one. Uh, it's it's a controversy. Everyone should leave Army Hammer alone. He he's he, he's a you know poor poor guy. Just let him let him have his 
cannibalism slash cat heart fantasies. It's fine. Uh, all right. Uh, if you enjoy the show, and who doesn't, it's great, even when we're talking about cannibalism and sex for 20 minutes. Uh, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com, where we'll have a bonus members-only episode about the defining films of the Trump era. What movies best sum up the last four years or so of the cinema and the culture and the world? All right, uh, now on to the main event. This week, we watched WandaVision, the MCU's first foray into the world of television. Uh, the first two episodes are live on Disney+, and they'll scratch that Marvel itch that's been missing from our lives for an unprecedented, at least since 2008 or so, uh, 18 months. Because that's how long it's been since Spider-Man Far From Home graced the big screen. Can you imagine that? 18 months. Black Widow is currently set for May, but who knows if that movie will be released given the slowness of the coronavirus vaccine rollout. Nothing's uh, ever coming out again. Until then, we'll, uh, we'll just have to make do with what we are getting on the small screen. And WandaVision, as I said, is the first MCU effort there. It stars Paul Bettany as Vision and Elizabeth Olsen as the Scarlet Witch. How can Paul Bettany star as Vision when Vision was... Uh, hold on, let me pull up my Marvel wikia here. It, he was killed uh, first by the Scarlet Witch uh, and then again by Thanos in Avengers Infinity War. Beats me. Uh, why do Vision and the Scarlet Witch seem to exist in a parody slash pastiche of 1950s and 1960s era sitcoms? I don't know. And why is there a beekeeper coming out of a sewer in the second episode? Who is to say? Uh, that's right, folks. This isn't just an MCU picture. It's also a lost style mystery box. One that seems to be combining a sort of homage slash critique of television as television's aesthetic history with a what in the fuck is going on in this show sensibility one rarely sees outside of Twin Peaks or, again, Lost. Uh, combining the two ideas here, the kind of MCU backstory and the mystery box, puzzle box idea, is probably smart, since I don't think the show is quite good enough to support a full season uh, that relies on one of the two. The parodies are kind of clever, I guess, but not really funny enough on their own, especially if you, like me, don't particularly care for early sitcoms. Uh, the mystery is kind of interesting, I suppose, though the Scarlet Witch has always been an exceptionally boring character to me, because her powers are shoot sparkly light and stuff, and maybe make things come back together or fly apart. I don't know. It's always an issue when magic is involved. Uh, Peter, what did you make of the first two episodes of WandaVision? Uh, I really quite liked it. Um, if only because it's so different from almost anything we've seen, not just from the MCU, but in kind of prestige television over the last couple of years. There's this really kind of like dark David Lynchian weirdness, the surrealness to the uh, uh, surreal quality to the whole thing, especially when the beekeeper shows up and then they rewind reality. And just to be clear, the Scarlet Witch powers uh, that you're confused by, I, it, it is completely legitimate to be confused by them because her powers are basically can control the nature of reality. And that's not a thing. Right. That's and that's just, and so, know. in fact, one of the criticisms of the character uh, from comic book nerds is that she's overpowered and that anytime you stick her into a scenario, you have to kind of rob her of her power somehow or another, because otherwise she can just reality change her way out of whatever the hell is going on and like solve your bad guy problem that way rather than through punching, which is what's necessary. Punching to get is you the to only the way of, yeah. to solve problems. But, That's the only way in this world to solve problems. But I also liked that. You also know, guns. I, I liked that. Punching and guns. I liked that this show was 
surreal and sort of strange and had its moments of darkness, but also was really light on its feet and was really just not a show that was like invested in like some sort of gloomy, grim outlook at all. I liked the shortness of the episodes, right? They're 30 and 35 minutes, the first two episodes. And that includes credit sequence that is credit sequences that are like 15 minutes long for some reason. Six or seven minutes of credit. It's also just such a great showcase for Paul Bettany. He's so delightful in this, and he just kind of owns this, like, neo-weird Dick Van Dyke thing in a way that 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 I just sort of fell in love with. And and the, the episodes themselves, as homages to I Dream of Jeannie and Dick Van Dyke in particular, um, I think maybe I like them better than you, Sonny. I, I agree. I don't know that this that there is enough there to just do this for eight episodes. And if the, the show doesn't develop somehow or another, although it suggests the end of episode two suggests that it's going to, I think that it will have been a little bit of a missed opportunity. But as as loving, like, weird homages to those old sitcoms, this really works quite well. And it just reminded me of, you know, growing up watching Nick at Night and watching those shows like I did. Um, and the other thing related to that is... It's a very smart move on Marvel's part and a very characteristic move because Marvel at its best has always repurposed genre um, for superhero movies, right? They're not just making superhero movies that just feel exactly like comic book movies and nothing else. They're, Winter Soldier is a is a 70s spy thriller, right? It's inflected by that uh, sort of sensibility anyway, right? Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy is Star Wars, except with a talking raccoon. Um, and Marvel's theory of how to make superhero movies has always been let's not just mine comic books but let's mine cinematic history so here for their opening salvo on television at least sort of in the uh, official mcu obviously there was a whole bunch of there were a whole bunch of shows on netflix um but at least for their opening salvo on television here what they've done is mine television history in a way that i think is pretty smart and pretty charming yeah, Alyssa, I mean, we, we, we often talk about the MCU uh, as a movie series being more like a television series. What do you make of their first foray into actual television? I really here? enjoy it. Uh, not, uh, by the way, I'm sorry. I, we, we are, we are, we have conveniently memory hold the entire uh, Netflix <laughs> Uh, MCU thing, which was which I, which nominally I, connected, right? There was, which was like very... the whole Daredevil existed in the aftermath of aliens attacking right. in yeah. the first Avengers, yeah, yeah. except that there was no actual connection. There was, at there was all. no actual connection. I'm sorry, so, uh, Alyssa. What do you, what do you make? Um, of this? I really enjoyed it, not least because it is in a lot of ways so unabashedly feminine and domestic. Um, you know, it is a story very about good. you know being a um, like. The, as the you know fake theme song says in the first episode, she's a magical gal in a small town locale, right? It's like it's about being newlyweds, except that you can't really remember when you and your husband met or whether you got married, although you think you probably did at one point. It's about you know figuring out how to fit in with the sort of you know bitchy supermom who like runs the cul-de-sac, um, but when like you're not actually sure how to behave like a normal human being. It's about like going to the neighborhood watch when like, and you find out that like what people do is sit around and eat Danish, but you don't consume food. Um, and so it's this like, it's this really nicely, you know, calibrated domestic story with these darker things hinted around the edges. Um, and I think I'm the only one of us who has seen the third episode, so I will not talk about it um, at all, except to say that it continues those themes and sort of paces the development into weirdness in a nice way. Um, we can obviously return to this at another point, and I think probably will. It's also just a really delightful little acting showcase. Um, you know, you've got Catherine Hahn, who is really funny and great, 
um, as Agnes, the sort of nosy neighbor next door. And the show does sort of interesting things um, with her characters. The episodes progress. And you see a little bit of that. You know, first she's just sort of nosy and interesting. Then she's sort of drinking her way through these committee meetings. Um, And so that's a nice nice showcase for her. Um, The show also has Tiana Paris, who I just love. Um, If you watched Mad Men, you know her as Dawn Chambers. Uh, If you watched Survivor's Remorse, you know her as Missy Vaughn. Um, She played Liz Estrada in Chirac, um, Spike Lee's uh, adaptation of the Greek tragedy. And she's just really charming. Um, I find her uh, just, you know like a lovely character actress she's got this you know sort of wonderful wide open face um she is able to play this spectrum of sort of cheery to steely in a way that i think lends itself very well um to the sitcom format um and it's you know it's i just thought it was a lot of fun it's nice to watch something fun that's not you know where the stakes don't appear to be huge the you know portents aren't always grim and foreboding um and you know i like magic more than you guys do um i am i am down for solving things with magic instead of guns and punching um and those sort of little touches you know i mean (laughs) the scene during the magic show where wanda's like constantly trying to find ways to make these things that vision can actually do seem seem not like magic exactly um like that and that's like legitimately funny and you know i mean the, the show is full of jokes that don't read as jokes to us in the same way because they have these sort of longer beats for the audience to react and they're, you know, the humor itself is dated. Um, but something like that is actually quite clever and lovely. Um, and I just, it's nice when the whole world has become the sort of apocalyptic movie that in fact our pals in the Avengers could not solve immediately to have a smaller scale, just fun story to watch i like the idea that vision got drunk by trying bubble gum yeah well specific, that and it, it like, gummed specific... up his works right <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah right i mean it's you know it's small and sometimes small things are good um you know their hbo max this weekend released uh lockdown this um movie that's like literally was written on a dare um last summer that is about you know, Anne Hathaway and Chueta Legiafor as a, like a lockdown London couple who decide to fix their coronavirus relationship woes by stealing a diamond. And it's just like, not everything has to be huge, right? Like, not everything has to be at that scale. In fact, it gets kind of exhausting when everything's at that scale. I mean, um, though, part of the the pitch here is that this does get bigger as time goes on. Like, the Marvel people are explicitly saying that this ties into... Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, the Sam Raimi sequel that's coming out supposedly next year, um, and that it's going to set up a bunch of the rest of the MCU, and and that all of these TV shows, you know, uh, that we're going to get through Disney Plus, all these Marvel shows, are going to provide interstitial and set up and connecting material for this big meta narrative that they're carrying out in the films, and you know, even this is going to lead us right into Falcon and the Winter Soldier. There's, what, eight or nine episodes of WandaVision. And then starting in the middle of March, we now have a release date for Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which is... Yeah, and if you, probably going to be a much more conventional kind of big Marvel action showcase. And if you it, more punching and guns. And if you've gone on IMDb, you will see that Tiana Paris's character actually has two names, one of which will be recognizable to people from the wider Marvel Cinematic Universe. Granted, all of that is true, but the driving action here is that Wanda Maximoff really loved her partner, who, as the rest of us know, is dead, 
and is trying to imagine a domestic life with him, right? Like, no matter how this links into the larger emotions, what matters here is the intimate emotions of a partnership that has gone awry and that one person in it wants to try and restore. That and uh, lobster door knocker jokes. <laughs> I uh, I do want to uh, I just I do want to double uh, down on Alyssa's point about the acting in this, which is wonderful. We haven't even mentioned Fred Melamed, who is in the first episode and is lovely. I, I anytime he shows up, whether it's in a serious band or uh, uh, I don't know, brawl in cell block ninety nine. He has a scene. It's it's just a wonderful it's just a wonderful occurrence and it should happen more frequently. Put Fred Melamed in more things. Um, and yeah, Paul Bettany is great. I mean, there was it was funny. There was this there was this uh, little little blow up this weekend on Twitter about Master and Commander. Somebody had said something something snarky about Master and Commander, and Russell Crowe was like, "How dare you say this about the wonderful movie that I was in, directed by Peter Weir?" But one one of the great little things about that uh, was Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany, who plays the the doctor on board the ship and who has a kind of wryly humorous relationship with Russell Crowe. They they also had great chemistry in a beautiful mind. Um, I I Paul Bettany I think is at his best when he is doing funny. He is he he has had a couple of films where he plays a more dour uh, character. The Vision, frankly, at, at, uh, Vision at first is is kind of dour in the movies, and then uh, some terrible movie about angels and fighting demons or something. I don't Legion, but, but and then he also had like a Legion. Nut. That's right. Had, yes, I, thank you. In my mind, he has like several of these like $20 million, not quite low, low budget, yes. but like like relatively low budget uh, genre flicks. So there's Legion and there's another one that's sort yeah. of like more science fiction-y in the future where it's a bunch of yeah. priests fighting vampires or something and they're all... Absolutely. And it's I just, think it may have been called Priest. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's I don't know. literally uh, called Priest. But no, he's great. He's yeah. great in everything, right? I mean, like, you know, not that you guys would know this since it's, you know generationally correct but gender inappropriate but like he's great as Jeffrey Chaucer in A Knight's Tale which is like a stupid like Heath Ledger plays like a commoner who becomes a medieval knight movie I mean he's just good in everything um he's wonderful he is wonderful he's wonderful uh he was not so great in Solo and I don't know that that was his fault but um well that was a nothing character it was a nothing it, character it, it, it was, was a it was terribly a character written. originally uh supposed to be played by um the wires, uh, the scar guy from the wire, uh, whose name, who the actor's name, Michael Kenneth Williams, uh, and they had shot most of those scenes, I think, or at least a bunch of them, before they switched directors, and then had, to, and he couldn't come back and do the reshoots, and um, so it's interesting to sort of think of that character as originally being Michael Williams. Yeah, that is interesting. Uh, all right, so what do we think on Wandavision? Is that a thumbs up or a thumbs down on the MCU's first televisual effort? <laughs> That we that we're allowed to acknowledge. Thumbs up will also levitating be China you got for your wedding. Thumbs up. Uh, I'm I'm a mixed thumbs up. I want to see more of the show. Honestly, I I like there's there's a lot of stuff that they they're gonna they're setting up here that they need to pay off in a real way. And my my honest hope is, and this is me projecting my own wishes, not what is actually happening in the show. But I like I hope that they continue the idea of like looking at the evolution uh, and the aesthetics of TV. By finishing it up with a, uh, a Sopranos uh, WandaVision, where it's just Paul Bettany playing uh, Tony Soprano. Like talking to the and, ducks. And, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, That's what I'm hoping for. Sonny, I suspect you will like what is coming in the next episode. I will not say more than that, Ooh. but I suspect you'll like Ooh, it. Oh, good. 
Excellent. I like to, I like to like things. That's great. Um, all right. Uh, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode about the best movies about the Trump era at atma.thebulwark.com. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we will die. Uh, if you didn't love today's episode, you're, you're probably wrong, but you can feel free to complain to me at Twitter, at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed once again. Uh, see you guys next week.